this is Tara J. Frank, and I just chatted with Ryan Foland about building bridges to the future. Also, we talked about wings and roots and space. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast, brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody. We are back with yet another World of Speakers podcast. And today I'm super excited because we have Tara J. And she is known for building bridges to your desired future. We're going to hear a story from her past. We are going to get her tips on how to best build the bridge in your speaking to tap into your talent. And then finally, we're going to learn how she looks at the business of speaking to help you find more success. Tara, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Good choice of words with fabulous. I'm always curious to see what people say when I ask that question. And fabulous, really, you can't get much better than fabulous. (laughs) Okay, so I want to start the show as I always do which is not reading your bio, but it is hearing a story from your past. If you could just pull a story, a fabulous or not, from your past that you really feel is a good representation of who you are as a person, if that's the only thing I had to describe you to somebody that I met who I wanted them to get to know you, what would that story look like? Can you pull from the Tara past and share it with us? Yeah, sure. Um, If you don't mind, I'll kind of share a two parts because they go together, kind of two sides of one coin. So I grew up, I like to describe it with a mother who gave me roots and a father who gave me wings, meaning my mom has always been very practical and grounded. And then my father pretty much treated me as though I had absolutely no limits. And the story where this really came to play is I was working at Hallmark Cards. I started there as a greeting card writer right out of college. And Several years later, I was in an editorial director position, and we were working with Dr. Maya Angelou, and I was her editor. So I I worked with her directly for about 10 years. And when I called, yeah, very, very cool stuff, very memorable, as you can imagine. When I called my father, (laughs) this this will give you a sense of him. When I called my father to tell him that I was Dr. Maya Angelou's editor and I was working with her, I was so excited, as you can imagine. He said to me, well, you're a better writer than she is. <laughs> and I was like, excuse me? And I remember at the time feeling so frustrated because I wanted him to be you know, as excited and surprised and delighted as I was to be having this experience. And in typical John Santeo form, he was just like, well, she's great, but so are you. You're great too. And I realized kind of thinking back on my childhood that I grew up with a man who literally believed that there was no aspiration too high for me, no dream too big, no goal too out of reach. And I do believe that growing up with him in that way completely shaped who I've become as a person. Interesting. Now, can you think back to your childhood? Is this something that has always been the case? Was he encouraging Halloween costumes that had wings? Was he encouraging superheroes that could fly? Was this a theme (laughs) that you always saw? A theme I always saw, and not so much in the, you know, superhero uh, costume (laughs) way, but more like every time I would come to him with some new accomplishment that I was excited about, it honestly made me crazy when I was young. Because when I was younger, I felt like he was never 
I don't want to say never satisfied, but I felt like I could never surprise or delight him with an accomplishment. He always responded like, well, of course, well, that's to be expected. You know, when I got my first raise, I called him and told him, oh, I got a raise. And he said, well, what was it? And I told him and he said, is that it? (laughs) They should be paying you more than that, right? So when I was younger, it was frustrating. As I've grown older and I have children of my own, we have six children I realized what he was actually doing is kind of instilling in me, not so much a a sense of never being satisfied, but more an expectation that I could do, achieve, right, accomplish anything and never to feel that I was somehow less worthy than anyone else. And so it's the seed he planted, I would say, that just got nurtured over time and grew into something that I've really come to embrace as an idea, right? As an idea that I should expect to succeed, I should expect to excel, I should expect to be valued for what I what I offer and what I contribute. And that honestly has been tremendously useful in my speaking career as well. Interesting. Now tell me about your mom with the roots. How was that dynamic? Was Did you also call her or how was that interaction and that balance? Yeah, she very grounded, very, very rational, right? (laughs) So I would call her about something crazy that I wanted to do. And she was the what if person. Well, Mm. well, have you thought about this? Well, did you call this person first? Did you check this? While my dad was like, yeah, go for it, you know, fly. I never really got too far from the ground so far that I might break my face, I like to say. There were checks and balances in my childhood and also in my young adulthood. So my mother provided that for me. You know, when I say she grounded me, she gave me roots, it's, I never really felt like I was floating, even as I was reaching for higher and greater things. It's interesting. I always am fascinated with how, you know, our relationships when we're young in the family help to formulate how we end up really reflecting ourselves to the world, you know, building that, like your parents really are the original builders of the bridge. Yes. And then have an opportunity to take the materials that they've given you. And then as you're doing building bridges for other people to help them build bridges, just like lots of bridges upon bridges and the technology of bridges from a baseline is like to get to the other side. (laughs) That's exactly (laughs) right. You've got uh, different options, right? Somebody can look at it. Well, who needs a bridge? Let's just get a big pole and run real fast. Or let's get a zip line or let's get a launching pad. Let's get a big spring. Let's tie some rockets to our back. So this idea of bridge building, I think, is an interesting metaphor for, you know, getting to the other side. And as we look at our parents to see what they did, uh, you know, for me, at least personally, I can see a lot of that has impacted the way that I approach what I'm doing. Now, my next question, I'm always fascinated with the idea of an inciting incident. Mm -hmm. It's that one moment that actually is the part where you can pin it and be like, wow, that's where I actually saw or heard or felt. Was there a certain inciting incident where you realized that speaking was something you might be able to double down on or that it was one of these strengths that you maybe hadn't identified before? Yes, absolutely. I have a very clear one. So nice. Uh, I know it's always good, right? When you have a very clear one. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, as I said, I worked at Hallmark for many years and I was a leader in our creative division. 
And so, you know, you can imagine we would have top leaders from customers come into the building and do the sales pitch thing, right? Share with them kind of what the creative strategies were, what the product strategies were. So I was invited to represent our creative product development, our recent work and products in a uh, sales meeting. And so the very top layer of this huge retailer, they were in town that day. They were in this meeting, our top leadership. They were also in this meeting. I was a middle manager at the time, if I'm remembering correctly. And so I got up there and I kind of told the story of our creative process. And I also shared some highlights of the product itself. And one of the top leaders from the retailer, he was watching me very intently the entire time. And when I was done talking about the product, he just kind of stopped and slammed his hand on the table. And he said, you know what? You are phenomenal. (laughs) And he said, some people speak in black and white. You speak in color. And it was one of these moments where I heard him loud and clear, like I felt it in my bones, but it also changed the way everyone around the table from my own company perceived my contribution. Hmm. And from that moment on, I got invited to more meetings like that, right? And was asked to represent the company on our 100th birthday or anniversary on the media tour and invited to all of these different kind of sessions and conversations where we needed someone from Hallmark to represent the heart of the work we do. So everything changed after that. And then I started having people tell me, you know, you should be a public speaker. You should be a motivational speaker. And While speaking as a career hadn't occurred to me to that point, I knew that I loved telling stories. I knew I loved getting deep into the content or the concept, understanding what success looked like, right? Figuring out a way to capture those ideas and share them with people so that they would not forget them. And that was quite frankly, the start of how I began to shape what would become my speaking career. Interesting. So a couple things. One is a comment or a question in that. Are you sure he didn't slap his hand and say you were fabulous? I don't think he said that. No, I may have heard it. I may have heard it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, there might be something deep seated in there. Like that's where the fabulousness started or whatnot. Like, <laughs> and the other I heard you say in describing what you started to talk about was the heart of the work that you did. And that just stuck in my mind as a very colorful phrase to bring the work to life. Like that is not a black and white sentence. You were not saying I decided, you know, at that point I was sharing the work in which we were doing in the company to create creativity for these companies. You're like, I was sharing the heart of the work. I'm like, dang, she just totally put this thing into color right here in front of me. I like it as an example, right? Yes, yes. Thank you. And, you know, when you work for a greeting card company where your job is to essentially help people express their innermost feelings for the sake of building bridges between themselves and other people, it really is a heart job. My history, right, or where my career began it never really went away, even though I'm not with that company anymore. You know, I don't do that specific kind of work anymore. All the work I do now really starts with human motivations and behaviors, right? So I, I wanted to be a greeting card writer when I was 14 years old. And I decided at that point that that's what I would go do. And I would find out where in the world Hallmark was, and I would work for them and I would write greeting cards. And 
And people say, wow, is that because you started writing at a young age? And the answer to that is yes, and. It wasn't only because I started writing poetry at six years old. It was also because I was infinitely curious about what makes people tick, about what makes them feel, why they feel, you know, what makes them feel more or less, how to share those feelings with other people in a way that essentially maximizes that emotion. I I was just always super emotional as a human being. And everything I was curious about came out of that heart place. And my mother called it, she said I was dramatic, but remember she's (laughs) rational. I'm like, leave it to mom. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm like, she saw it as being dramatic. I now know I've just always been super emotional. Like emotion is the core of who I am as a person. And, And as you can imagine, that sometimes creates complexity, but other times it has created this world of opportunity for me where I'm able to bring that in very practical ways to other people and inspire them to see a future beyond where they are. All right. So I have a challenge for you. As we transition, we've got a a really good idea of who you are now, and we know that you have the skill of writing greeting cards. So I'm going to challenge you to right now on the spot, help me come up with writing some greeting cards (laughs) to our listeners, specifically highlighting tips and tricks of the speaking trade so that we send it to them in the mail. And then they're like, oh, this is such a nice card. Like, what is this artwork? And then they open it up and this little nugget, they're like, wow, this really speaks to me. This makes sense. So let's design a set of greeting cards for speakers, specifically with speaking tips. And then we can decide on the envelope color and everything like that later. I am cracking up on the inside because you have no idea how many times people have asked me to write a greeting card on the spot. I'm like, "Mm, good writers and fast writers aren't always the same thing. But I have given some thought to this whole tips thing. And I do have a few. So we may be able to create what we would call a boxed set to be able to share with people that pretty much follows tips. And you know this, you're a speaker. Everyone has their own way of going about this work. And it has to be authentic and genuine for you. You know, for me, there are four things I do every single time. And I do not feel like I'm successful when I skip a step. And so if I had a box set of speaker tip slash greeting cards, the first set would be preparation. The second would be practice. The third would be prayer. And the fourth would be presence. And it would be about those four things, because that's essentially what happens between the time I get a gig and the time I get off stage. Okay, so let's break those down and deconstruct them one by one. Let's find out what the ink is made of. So when it comes to preparation, what is the color behind the preparation? Well, for me, you know, the first step to prepare is really important for me to know my audience, which sounds like a big duh. Right. You know, we ask these questions. Who's going to be in the room Where are they from? You know, what's your gender mix? Like I ask demographic questions and all of that. But more than that, I always ask the people hiring me about their objectives. So what are you trying to achieve ultimately? Um, I ask questions about pain points, right? What are the pain points for the people in the audience? I also ask every single time, what does success look like for you? So if by the time we're done with this experience and people are, are giving you feedback about it, What are they saying specifically that would make you feel that this particular experience was a great success? And so knowing my audience is more than about understanding their demographic facts and figures, if you will. It's really, again, 
knowing what's underneath that. What do people need? What are they motivated by? What are they kind of striving for? And then what does success look like? So that's how I prepare. Okay. So my question, diving a little bit deeper into that, Mm -hmm. what is your specific tactic in which you receive this information? Are you calling them on the phone? Is your assistant gathering it? Is it a form that they fill out? How do you get this out? Yeah, I talk to people on the phone. I have an initial phone call with every potential client. So they may fill out a form initially. They may reach out to my assistant the first time. But my first step in the process is to talk to people on the phone. I schedule a 30-minute call, and I just ask lots of discovery questions, essentially, to try to understand what they're trying to achieve. And in that time, I'll usually feel it in the moment and then kind of share a couple of potential ideas with them about how we might be able to collectively achieve their desired outcomes. But it always starts with a, a first call for me. Gotcha. Okay, I dig it. So let's deconstruct the practice. When you say practice, what do you think of? Because there are different thoughts of practice, right? My martial arts instructor always told me, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. So tell me about kind of your thoughts within those letters that make up the word practice. Yeah, well, I do not have a thought for each letter, unfortunately. I have not, you know, unpacked it that much, but... Yeah, but practice for me is about being very, very clear on my storyline. I don't memorize my talks, but I memorize my storyline, if that makes sense. So if I have an actual presentation deck, then for each visual I have or each slide, I understand the story that is attached to that particular visual. And I do that because I figure if I am clear about the story I want to tell, then even if, you know, somebody asks me a question when I didn't expect it, or my presentation doesn't work, or I forget to say this one specific data point, right? I forgot to share this research. I will not ever lose sight of the story I'm trying to tell. So I get clear about the storyline and then I practice telling the stories point by point. I literally put like a story per bullet. So if I have 10 slides, I have 10 bullet points because there is a story for each of those. And I practice that. I don't practice it by reading it per se. I will write it all down because writing it down, as you know, helps you to remember it. But then after I've written it all down, I'll just tell the story. Sometimes I tell it in the mirror, but usually not, honestly. I'll just kind of sit there with my notepad beside me and then tell the stories at least a couple of times until I feel like I am one with the story. So that's the practice phase for me. This practice thing is fascinating because I'm sure you've heard this as well. When you get up there and you do your thing, And then people always say to me afterwards, it comes out so naturally, you know, do you just get up there and talk? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) I prepare, I practice, I don't just get up there and talk. It's beautiful when it seems that way, when it comes across that way. But I like wholly believe in practicing. Yeah. It's like you've got your mom on your shoulder whispering, what happens if something goes wrong? You've got to make sure that you're prepared. And then your dad on the other side being like, come on, just wing it. You got this. And like, you've got this mix where you're, you're prepared, you've got the roots, but then you're not fearful to sort of uh, flap your wings a little bit and see where it takes you on stage. Yeah, definitely. All right. So talk to me about prayer. Let's put our hands together if that's what we're talking about. And let's Let's dig into it. Yeah. So this is an important step for me personally, because after I've prepared and after I've practiced, when I actually get on site, 
like in the 10 minutes before I'm going to hit the stage, I have to release it. Like I have to realize that I have done all the preparing and all the practice I can possibly do. And so I just, I say the same prayer every single time. I say, dear Lord, I pray that your words become my words, your thoughts become my thoughts. And then I just let it go. Hmm. I just trust. I trust that I am as prepared as I'm going to be. And it helps me to stop spinning in my head like about all the 52 things I want to remember to say. So I surrender at that point. Yeah, because the final <laughs> moments before going on stage, if you don't control that that process, it can control you. And especially when you, you know, all the anticipation, everything up into it. So I, I like that, this idea of release to just sort of let go and have faith in the practice and the time that you put forth. Yeah, that's right. Because I've, I've seen a lot of people speak over the years. I do a lot of speaking, but then I also design conferences for a couple of organizations. So I get to see people speaking all the time, right? Beyond just myself. And the worst possible thing is when you can tell someone, and it's happened to me before, not in a while, but it's happened when someone is in their head too much. And so I try to get out of my head at that point. Gotcha. And then that really leads to the fourth, which is presence. And yes. so you have to be outside of your head in order to be present. Otherwise, you are your worst nightmare until it stresses you out if you can't get out of your own head. Yeah, th that's absolutely true. The presence for me is honestly the most powerful part. And I think this is where, I believe this is where people feel me the most, where they say, you were so fun or, or funny or engaging or however they describe the presence on the stage. What they're really describing is the fact that beyond all the preparation, I am there in that moment with them. And so if something surprising happens, I'm able to respond on my feet, right? Like I said, if someone raises their hand and just wants to ask a question in the middle of right, the talk, I am there with them and I'm able to respond you know, organically. It's seeing people's faces, understanding what they're responding to and what they're not responding to, being able to kind of flex, right? Understanding when I might be taking too long at a certain point in my talk based on the body language. And so I'm able to kind of speed ahead. All of those things are possible because I make myself be present once I am out there. Now, I'm going to say that that is not an easy thing to do. And my question to you is, how do you practice your mindfulness or your presence when you're not on stage? This is a really good question. There are times I feel more present on stage than I do in other parts of my life, believe it or not, because my brain is always working. Right. And once I get out there, I cannot think about anything else other than what I am doing, you know, in that moment. And so it's a liberating feeling, uh, very exhilarating for me. Other than that, my brain is sometimes my worst enemy, but I try to spend you know, time actively listening, right? It, for me, that's the best way to practice being present is in conversation with another person face-to-face -face, where you say to yourself, I'm not going to wonder what that chime was on my telephone. You know, I'm not going mm -hmm. to look at the what time my next meeting starts. I know it's not in five minutes, right? I'm not going to be thinking about everything I want to say to this person versus what they're trying to say to me. 
So active listening, I find, is a really helpful way to practice being present. I'm not always as good at it as I want to be, to be frank. But that is something that I try to do when I'm not on stage. It makes me think of this concept, and I don't know the exact quote, if it were going to be in a holiday card or some sort of card, but something along the lines of, you know, it ends up feeling like the days are long and the years are short. And so it's almost like there's all this prep time and all of the back end work and all of that, at least from my perspective, sometimes it just feels like it all blends together because there's just like whoosh. And then that 45 minutes that you're on stage sometimes seems like that's it. Like you were in that moment, you were so there that, you know, time just kind of stands upon itself. Mm -hmm. Do you feel something similar to that when you're on stage? That is this moment that seems to extend. And then like all of a sudden flash forward and you're like, it's another year. And then you're like, oh, I'm on this stage again or something (laughs) like that. I do feel that way. It's funny you say that because I find that if I'm on stage and I feel like the moment is extended Sometimes it's because I'm thinking too hard, if that Mm. makes sense. I find that the more present I am, the more natural it is, the faster it goes, you know, the more I'm paying attention to the people in the audience as well as what it is that I want to share with them. So if I'm really present, if I'm really in that moment with everyone, then in the first 10 minutes, I'll say, it seems like it's going more slowly. And then all of a sudden I'll look at the clock because, you know, the best thing in the world is to have a time clock. I'll look at the clock and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I have four minutes left, right? I got to wrap this party up. (laughs) But the more, the more I settle into it, the faster it goes. In, In the beginning when I'm trying to get my rhythm and when I say get my rhythm, I mean like our rhythm, because to me, it's a collective rhythm. It's not just me on stage trying to do my thing. It is me trying to be aware of them um, and creating a moment where we're all in there together. And that usually doesn't happen right away. It takes five to 10 minutes to happen. But once it does, it's like, oh, look at the time, you know? (laughs) Right. It makes me think visually of like a tuning fork where like, you know, you slap the tuning fork and it's always consistent, but then you've got to like sort of match to that tone. But then once you get it, you're like, we're in that groove. Definitely. So all of this is for naught if you don't get up on the stage, right? So I want to transition into how you visualize the speaking business Mm -hmm. and some of the things that you wish you would have known or some of the things that you actively are telling people if their desired future is to become a professional speaker and how you build that bridge to get them there. I love this question and I get it a lot now. You know, I'm thinking about being a speaker. I want to be a speaker. What would you share with me? And I had the benefit of some really wonderful guides early in this career. And one of them, his name is D. Keith Piggies, and he probably gave me the most valuable piece of advice of any advice I've received. So I would say Keith and then also a world champion speaker whose name is Ed Tate. So several years ago, when I first thought, I think I want to be a speaker. And literally it was probably 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. He came to do a talk at Hallmark and he was amazing. And we spent some time afterwards and I was talking to him about it. And I said, you know, people tell me I should be a speaker and I really want to be a speaker. And I was thinking about speaking as an act, right? Like as a verb, I'm going to go speak. And so he, he says to me, well, that's great. What are you going to speak about? And I was like, uh, 
I don't know. You know, (laughs) the words that are coming out of my mouth. Exactly. I'm going to speak about the things that enter my brain and then come out. And it's so basic, but he is the person who essentially said to me, you have got to decide what you are going to speak about, what you will be known for, what your expertise will be, right? What you will share with people that will make their lives better somehow. And you have to figure out how to focus on something that other people can grasp because no one's going to hire you just to speak. They're going to hire you to teach them or inspire them relative to a specific topic or desired outcome. And when he said that, it made all the sense in the world. You know, I was a business person. I'm, you know, I'm halfway smart, right? It wasn't surprising what he said, but somehow I was not marrying that kind of clear value proposition thinking with the fact that I wanted to be a speaker. I was just thinking about the fact that I wanted to be a speaker. And so I spent years after that, not actively, not every day, because I was still full-time in corporate, but there were certain times during the years following that I asked myself, what am I going to speak about? And I eventually came to it. I wanted to speak about leadership. I really wanted to focus on women in leadership. No matter what job I had at Hallmark, I always relished leading most, right? Talent development was something I was hugely passionate about. So I came to my topic over time, but he was the first person to say, first, you got to decide what you're going to speak about. So I share that with people today. And then D. Keith Pegues was the person who said, you need to think about how you're going to value yourself as a speaker because if you don't figure that out first, you will never get other people to value you appropriately. And I will never forget this. I spoke for one year in the very beginning for free. And I did that because I was trying to build credibility and visibility. I'm like, if I go out there in the world and I speak for free, the more people will see me speak. If I do a good job, they will like it. You know, They will want me to come back. They will share it with other people. So in my mind, the strategy made all the sense in the world. But I was also still working full-time in my corporate executive position. So I didn't have to make money speaking. I was just going out there, doing it, doing more of it, getting more comfortable doing it. And I will never forget, he said to me, when someone as good as you are goes out to speak for free, you make life difficult for all the people who make a living doing it. Hmm. And I had never thought of it that way. It shocked me to my core, to be honest, because it was never my intent to devalue the industry of speaking, which is essentially what he was telling me I was doing. You are unconsciously devaluing this industry by doing this, and you should be making money doing this. You should not go do this for free. So one, what was the value I would bring to people as a speaker? And then two, how would I value it monetarily moving forward. And just, it's been crazy how much both of those points have kind of changed everything for me. So here's a question for you when it comes to speaker bureaus, Mm -hmm. because I'm just curious your thoughts on it. I love the advice of knowing what you're going to talk about and making sure that you value yourself it's almost like love yourself before you can love anybody else. That's what I just, I couldn't stop thinking about that when you're saying that you have to love your message before somebody else will, will maybe love it. You have to know your fees and accept it before somebody else will accept it. Right. But speaker bureaus seem to market themselves as sort of, you know, this unique breed that is there to help you out. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of talk about being bureau ready and 
the idea that a bureau is not going to help you figure that out. You've got to figure that out and then go to the bureaus. Yeah. So where, where do you see bureaus fitting in? And is it something that you leverage? What are your thoughts? I don't use any bureaus personally. And I remember when I first started speaking, I was dying for a bureau to want to represent me somehow. I felt like that was the signal that I was successful if a bureau would take me on. And so I reached out to a couple in the early days and I didn't get any bites. I didn't get anyone interested. And I remember I felt some kind of way about that. And then over time, through both consulting and speaking and building some long-term kind of robust relationships, I got to a point where I didn't need a bureau. So I don't use one now, not because I never thought about it or never thought it might be helpful for me, but because I had to make my way without that. And once I did, it doesn't serve me to use a bureau now because I would make less money than I make just doing this on my own. Yeah, I feel you on that. But I think as a business model, there's an interesting misconception about that. So I love to hear that you sort of by necessity figured out things without them and realized in that process you didn't necessarily need them. And I don't think people need them. I think for the right person at the right time, it's a great accelerant. but I don't think it's something that from my research and my experience, it's not something that they're not going to help you get to that level 10. They're looking for level 12s to then get them to the 15s. So I completely agree with you. They were looking for level 12s. I was thinking, isn't a bureau supposed to help you? You know, I had it all kind of flipped in my head. And now, you know, like I said, they reach out and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm good. You know, not that it couldn't be valuable at some point. I'm, I'm certainly not dismissing it as a, you know, as a useful path, but I just don't have a need for it now. Yeah. And that kind of leads me to my, my final question when it comes to the balance between presenting yourself as a successful speaker and essentially ditching the act to show people where you're at in that process. Now, as you know, Leonard Kim and I wrote our book, Ditch the Act, and I'm always curious to see how you see vulnerability and authenticity and transparency playing into this process because you're talking about 15-year process. And I think sometimes we forget about that. And there's this tendency I I see where people, as they're starting their speaking career, and this is myself included, I was like, I need to look like the baddest person out there. I need to have everything super polished. Mm -hmm. If it's not polished, I don't want people to see. What are your thoughts of that when it comes to ditching the act and your ability to be successful in the speaking business? I think this is a really powerful discussion to have. And I honestly go back and forth about this. I try to be, I'll I'll say LinkedIn is the platform I use most frequently. And people say, when they meet me in person, they say, I feel like I know you, you know, and I tell them, well, you do. Because I'm pretty transparent on LinkedIn. If I'm having like a crazy day, I'll just be like, oh my God, I'm having a crazy day or I can't focus or, you know, look a squirrel, things like that. So I'll share, I'll be vulnerable in the moment. If I'm kind of struggling to be productive, if I had a a rough day or, or experience, that kind of thing. But I also... And I don't know if it's because I'm a woman leader, if if it's because I'm a black woman leader, I don't really know what it is. I don't know that I will ever feel comfortable peeling back the curtain all the way to my bones. Right. Because I sometimes feel, you know, as somebody who does not fit the mold anyway, that people are sometimes looking for the holes in your armor to begin with. 
And so I really honestly try to strike a balance. You know, I'm not going to be the person on Facebook or on LinkedIn telling everybody about every single failure that I have ever experienced in life. But I also don't pretend to be perfect. And I don't pretend that I have it all figured out. And I don't pretend that I never have bad days. That is not real. It's not at all genuine. But I try to be conscious, though, of striking a balance. Because I also want people to be confident that when they hire me to come into their company, right, and teach their, you know, women leaders how to reach their goals, that they can trust me to do that and to do it with consistency and to do it with credibility and with authority. And that's as important for me ensuring my business can thrive as it is for me to be transparent and vulnerable. Yeah. I love that. We talk about those little small sharings as level one exposures, like on a scale of one to five. And it's not about sharing the level fours. And we suggest not to share the level fives. But I've personally found the more that I open up with those level ones, like I've I had really weird, crazy, scary dreams the last two nights. I saw that. And I shared that. And I was like, because I mean, like that's a level one exposure. I wouldn't normally be like, hey, my name is Ryan. I'm a professional speaker. And I had a bad dream last night. Right. Right. <laughs> But the response has been overwhelming, like people making me realize it might be the food I'm eating. Uh, you know, I could guess the stressors, but I have people DMing me now with like these resources and all this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'm a human. I have bad dreams too. And I don't typically have dreams and I don't typically have bad dreams, but just something is just weird. And sharing that has like, I feel like I'm letting people get to know me because I had a bad dream, you know? Yeah. And you are. And I, you know, I saw that this morning, Ryan, and I thought, okay, I can relate. I had a bad dream last night too. I totally did. And I woke (laughs) up this morning like, what the heck was that about? I remember I shared something earlier in the year in January. It may have been a level two. I basically shared that everything was quiet at that moment. And I was was kind of thinking, oh my gosh, am I going to reach like my goals this year for my business? Because it's so quiet in these parts. But I wouldn't share it until things had started to pick up in a crazy way, right? So things started to pick up crazy. And so I was like, wow, earlier this year, I was wondering X. And now, like, I'm looking for a clone machine. Well, I felt like it was totally honest because it was. It's what I had experienced. But somebody in my family was like, why did you share that? You know, your clients are going to think that your business is not successful. And I was like, well, my business is successful. I just had a quiet January and it kind of freaked me out. So so things like that every now and then I'm like, oh, did I overshare? You know, I ask myself that all the time. Yeah. But I think the key is balance. And I think the key is those lower level exposures where like, I mean, I can tweet out a number of different things like, hey, this amazing podcast with Tara. And it'll be like, you know, a couple of people here, a couple of people there. Yeah. But then it's like, I had a bad dream and I'm just kind of like, I'm not sure what's going on. And it's like, everybody jumps in and everybody wants to talk about it. I'm like, I can't keep up with the tweets today. So I like that. It probably goes back to your comment about people looking for themselves in your stories. Right. That they don't really care about you. They care about themselves and seeing themselves in your stories. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing, right. everybody, because we all care about ourselves. But if you start to share things that more people can relate to. Cause if all you're sharing is stuff that a professional speaker is going to be like, Oh yeah, I, <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. I'm, I'm stressed out when I'm about to give a $10,000 keynote tomorrow <laughs> too. <laughs> right? It's like, no. So it's like the lower you bring that level, the more people can actually relate and and give value and give value back to yeah. you. Cause you're talking and I'm going to, this is the whole, I see the whole picture coming again together here. 
you talk about to be successful, you have to not only know what you're going to say, but you have to know your own value and you have to convince yourself that you are giving value. Yes. But if you don't let people give you value, it will become imbalanced. It's like the friend who never lets you pay for gas, always covers the bill. And you feel like kind of like cheated out of your ability to participate. So it sounds like what you're doing is bridge building, but bringing people to work on site with you. Yeah, it's, that's very, very true. And my, my best relationships as you know, is always the case are reciprocal. I am a human being. I, when I decide I'm going to give, I give it all. Like I leave it all out on the stage and I never want to feel like I've done that and it's not reciprocal. And I also don't want the opposite to be true. You know, I don't want anyone to ever feel that they gave me more than they got right. in this business that I'm in. And so I work hard to ensure that that the relationships are reciprocal and that manifests in so many different ways. It's not always about, you know, cash money. Sometimes it's about other things, but reciprocity for me is important. And it's kind of the lifeblood of sustainable relationships, which essentially is what I really tried to nurture in this business. Yeah. And nurture sounds like nature. And that's exactly what we all are at the end of the day. And you have to have an ecosystem. You have to have the plants taking the carbon dioxide. You have to have the release of the oxygen. You got to get your mom to give you the roots. You got to get your dad to get you to climb for the skies. So it's, it's all there. I mean, there was a lot to unpack here. And I think this is one of the episodes that, you know, people can listen to over and over and get different nuggets each time. So Tara, I can't thank you enough. This has been totally cool. I'm going to send you a nice greeting card with a stick figure drawing <laughs> on it, and it's going to be an original. It's going to be a, a, a Ryan original. I will frame it and keep it forever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Awesome. So how do people get in touch with you to have you help them build a bridge with you for what they want to do? Oh, thank you for asking. I'm at tarajfrank.com. So that's T-A-R-A-J-A-Y-E-F-R-A-N-K.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Tara J. Frank. I'm on Twitter at Tara Middle Initial J. Frank. And on Instagram at Tara J. Frank, T-A-R-A-J-A-Y-E-F-R-A-N-K. I feel honored that I really feel like I got to know you more today as we were able to have our little chat. Same. And I appreciate you inviting me so much. Thank you so much, Ryan. All right. This is it. If you guys or girls enjoyed this show, then then like it, share it, Facebook it, gram it, whatever you got to do to get it out there in the world, because this is a way that you can add value to others by sharing how Tara adds value to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another World of Speakers podcast. Tara, we will see you in the flip side, online, offline, and I hope to share the stage with you sometime. Adios. I hope so too. Bye, everyone.